Second Timothy chapter one. I'm going to read verses three through seven, and then we will talk about verses six and seven. So Second Timothy chapter one, starting at verse three. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. I do want to remind you that uh, 2 Timothy starting in chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 13, is primarily focused on urging and encouraging Timothy, of course, but by extension, church leaders in general, and all of us after that. It's uh, primarily focused on encouraging and urging us to remain courageous in standing with God and proclaiming God's truth wherever we may be, with whomever we are. And to do that in spite of the threat of being criticized, rejected, persecuted, imprisoned, or even put to death. So that's the primary focus of that section. Uh, Once again, we'll look at parts of it, so you might lose sight of that, just reminding you so you keep that in mind. Let's pray. Father, what you have for us today, use it to awaken us, urge us on, encourage us. May we find help in it as we serve you and seek your good and the good of your kingdom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So once again, verse 6 says, For this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because of Timothy's sincere faith, which was passed from his grandmother Lois to his mother Eunice, and on to Timothy, Paul is in this statement reminding Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in him through the laying on of hands. In urging Timothy to kindle afresh, he's actually, in essence, saying, fan the flames, put more fuel on the fire. And the fire would be Timothy's motivation to make full use of the gift given to him through the laying on of hands and a gift that comes from God. A number of years ago, quite a few actually, I memorized Romans 12. And in that section, it says that uh, those who lead should do so with diligence. And one of the things that I began to think about in terms of that statement is, how am I leading? And at the time, I was feeling 
like, yeah, I need to do my job, but uh, you're not really going anywhere that fast. So, you know, cruise maybe, uh, slack off a bit, go slower, don't push so hard. And then with diligence, and I thought, you know, I'm not being as diligent as I should be. And I share that because I can understand why Paul might say to Timothy, pick up your slack, don't get lazy, don't go easy, don't slack off, don't back off. <laughs> Keep pressing on in spite of the response. And that's what he's urging Timothy to do. Fan the flames, put more fuel on the fire, urge your motivation to be up as high as it can be and use the gift that God has given you. We don't really know for certain what the gift was. But we do know from the scripture that it came from God. It was in Timothy. It wasn't something that was outside of him. And that Timothy received this particular gift when the elders laid hands on him. Now I know that verse 6 says, and Paul, Paul says, when I laid my hands on you. But it's also in other portions of First and Second Timothy that we have reference to the elders laying hands on him. And the most likely explanation is that for some reason Paul is referring to himself here. In other places he refers to the group at large that prayed over Timothy and laid hands on him. The idea of laying hands on those who are going out into service is not new. There's actually a long history among God's people. And uh, if we look for the first reference to such an activity, it comes in Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 through 20, where God says to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, and have him stand before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight." You shall put some of your authority on him in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. So that is the first reference in the scriptures to the laying on of a hand or hands of someone who is being set apart, specifically called to a specific work of God. Deuteronomy chapter 34.9, which happens to be the last chapter in Deuteronomy, adds a bit more information to the Numbers account. And we read in uh, Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. We also know from church history that the early church followed this practice, not only from history itself, but also from the book of Acts. And we have an account of this in Acts chapter 6, verse 6, which says that after the congregation selected seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and they were selecting these men for the specific task of handing out food to the widows, 
After the congregation had selected these seven men, they brought them to the apostles who, after praying, laid hands on them. And again in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, we read that at the church in Antioch, where there were prophets and teachers, it lists five, and included in those five were Barnabas and Paul, or Saul at that time. Well, anyway, while this group was praying and fasting, these five prophets and teachers, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. So when they finished their time of fasting and prayer, they prayed over Barnabas and Paul, laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Returning to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. Here again, Paul speaks of having laid hands on Timothy himself and God having given Timothy a gift. It's probable Paul spoke of this gift in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, which says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through or by means of prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, and the presbytery simply means a group of elders. As stated earlier, we don't know for certain what the gift was. But since we know God gave it to Timothy when Paul or Paul and the elders laid hands on him, my best guess, to me it's probable, that this gift was intended to enhance Timothy's ability to do the work God was calling him to do. However, more important than knowing the gift God gave Timothy, we could debate that, discuss that, make our best guesses, but more important than that is knowing that God gives enabling gifts to those called to serve him in some capacity or specific way. That is the truth that's really important for us. In looking at my own life, I have concluded that the way I think, the way I see the world around me, the way I understand human nature and why we do what we do, the way I approach the Word of God, and the emphasis that I place on godliness over other things, for me, these are the result of what God has given me, what God has done in me, what God has taught me, what God has said to me in order to enhance my work as a pastor. I also recognize that God has not given the same gift or gifts to every pastor or teacher or elder or missionary or Christian worker in any service. There are different gifts that God hands out. I really like mine. There is no doubt about that. I'm happy for them. Thankful. I give God thanks on a regular basis. But not everybody has to have mine, and I don't have to have theirs. What matters most is not what gift or gifts we've received from God, but how we use what God has given us. And hence we have Paul urging Timothy to kindle afresh, 
Get the fire going. Crank up the zeal. And that's a truth that we can all at least consider for ourselves. Now you may never have been set apart for some particular ministry or form of Christian service. I have. I was uh, licensed by the Alliance, ultimately uh, ordained at an ordination service by the Alliance. Um, So I've gone through that process and uh, had prayer and hands laid on and and, uh, that kind of thing. You may never have had that. But according to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, each of us, that means everybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, each of us, has been given a gift or gifts in order to serve God and the needs of the church accordingly. And so one of the lessons that we can learn from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, and its surrounding context, is that even though your gift comes from God, and it does, and even though every one of us has been given a gift, and I'm assuming we have, it is your responsibility and my responsibility to use it earnestly and to use it well even if it costs you or costs me what I'd prefer not to pay. And sometimes it does. And so my question is, what gift has God given you? Don't know if you've thought about that or if you have, if you have any recognition of that. But what gift has God given you? Or maybe if we ask the question more simply, Where do you think you best fit in in relation to humbly yet earnestly serving God and the needs of our church or those outside our church? And I add humbly because, again, if you go back to Romans chapter 12, one of the things that prevents us from kind of struggling for supremacy within the church is to realize what God has given us in terms of a gift and humbly using it and considering others as more important than ourselves. And that way, our gift never becomes something that we have to fight to use. As we have opportunity, we use it. And as we don't, we don't. And my desire is that we would each humbly and cheerfully serve either in the church, among ourselves, or outside the church, according to the gift God has given each of us. Moving on to verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. It's clear from the context that when Paul wrote verse 7, he had Timothy and himself specifically in mind. And yet it can be and ought to be applied to all of us. The purpose of these words, he hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. The purpose of these words is to encourage us to remain courageous in doing God's work and speaking God's truth in the face of resistance and opposition. And if you are doing this, on any kind of recurring basis, then you've experienced resistance 
and most likely opposition. Applying these words to all of us, in my opinion, is especially important in our age, in our day, in our culture. Because we live in a society where tolerance of all the things the culture accepts is treated as good and the only acceptable thing to do. While disapproval or anything that goes against what the culture accepts is treated as evil and therefore intolerable. Even if what is culturally acceptable opposes God or conflicts with God's word or contradicts basic morality or goes against nature. In a setting like this, in in our culture, we need boldness. Not the kind of boldness that is obnoxious or derogatory and therefore needlessly offensive. But the kind that speaks the truth in love, that stands its ground with gentleness and patience, and that sets forth truth with reason and logic, even though it is met with irrational arguments, the twisting of truth, anger, condemnation, potentially verbal abuse and intolerance. The point is, is that we need a humble and respectful boldness, a boldness that isn't intimidated or frightened into silence. And so it is for this reason, in my opinion, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, but rather He's given us a spirit of power and love and discipline or what can be called sound judgment. By the way, the word there for discipline is a Greek word that only appears that single time in all of uh, the New Testament. And if you have the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, it doesn't appear there either. So it only appears once and it's rather challenging to interpret it or put an English word to it. So it could be discipline, it can be sound judgment. In the end, it means pretty much the same. So I want to look at the things that God didn't give us and what God has given us. He's not given us a spirit of timidity or fear and cowardice. The word spirit is not capitalized in the New American Standard because it does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the disposition or mindset that we have in response to the resistance received from advocating God's standards and proclaiming biblical truths. What is our disposition? What is our mindset? What's our attitude when people oppose us or resist us? As this verse makes clear, our disposition or mindset can go in two directions, either toward timidity, fear or cowardice, on the one hand, or toward power, love, and discipline. The timidity or fear and cowardice direction is our doing. That's not God's doing. That's our doing. The power, love, and discipline direction is the result of what God gives us. However, we must live accordingly if what he gives is to have its intended effect 
on our service to him. Just because God gives it doesn't mean we're going to use it. And if we don't use it, it doesn't just automatically come out of us. A spirit of timidity or fear and cowardice is a disposition or a mindset that is concerned more with personal safety, well-being, financial security, approval and acceptance, just to name a few things. So a spirit of timidity is a disposition or mindset that is concerned about self, in essence, more than about God's truth and the good of the community and the spiritual health of the church and being a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. One of the things that has been very helpful to me and which I don't find being an accepted belief by a lot of people is that we are community people. God is the God of community. Yes, he engages with us individually. But if you go back in history, God didn't make just Adam. He made Adam and Eve. He didn't just call Abraham. He called a nation. It wasn't just Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. It was all of Israel. God is a God of community. And if we are going to love God, serve God, and seek the good of others, we need to be community-minded. We need to think community. Not just the individual, not just ourself, but what is in the best interest of the entire community. What is my mindset? How do I think when I'm going up against some of the arguments of the world regarding what is going on in our world and how we should approve of that and support that, be part of that? I need to have as part of my thinking the community good. Why? Because when the threat level becomes greater than the timid Christian wants to bear, he acts like a coward who fears the cost of going into battle alongside his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Cost. Remember the idea of cost. What is it going to cost me? That is an important way to think. Sadly, we often pick what costs us less in this life at the expense of what is best for the community and the next life. I realize it's hard to keep in mind that we aren't just living for today. We are living forever. We are laying up treasure in heaven. That's not just financial treasure. We are preparing a life for eternity. It's too easy to think that, well, if I just get into heaven, that's good enough. But remember, that's forever. And I suspect that once we're there, we can't change the outcome of our life here. And you may wish you had thought more about what eternity is going to be and how you're going to prepare for it. Cost. 
present cost is often not worth giving a lot of attention to in light of what is best for God, his kingdom, the community, and our eternal lives. When we allow people to intimidate us or the cost of standing with God to silence us, it results in hiding our light, which gives the enemy an advantage and allows the darkness that already exists in our world, in our culture, in our neighborhood, it allows that darkness to become that much darker. I want to acknowledge that your light and my light and our light shining together can never remove all the darkness that oppresses our world. Jesus wasn't able to do it when he was here. The disciples weren't able to do it as a group. The church has not been able to do it down through the ages. We're not going to be able to do it. Yet every bit of light that we shine into the darkness gives opportunity for those living in darkness to see the light and come to the light, capital L. So my encouragement to us is to cast aside timidity and fear and to move towards boldness, but boldness with humility, thoughtfulness, thoughtfulness with love, And make use of the wisdom and empowerment given to us by the Holy Spirit to sow seeds of truth into the minds and hearts of those who oppose the truth. I got a call today from one of my grandchildren who was significantly upset. And though I in some ways would have preferred not to engage in this conversation given the other things that I felt I needed to do. I also appreciated the fact that this grandchild at least calls. And though this grandchild has not lived accordingly, at least this grandchild listens. I don't know what happens to it after we hang up or after... This grandchild leaves our house, but at least the grandchild listens to what I have to say. And that's an opportunity, in my opinion, to sow good seed. It may not bring forth the fruit I would like, but it's still an opportunity to sow good seed. And I try not to be unkind or needlessly offensive, and yet it is my goal to be very truthful, very clear, very honest in talking with this grandchild. So God hasn't given us fear, cowardice, timidity, but he has given us a spirit of power, love, and discipline. So let's start with power, the spirit of power. When I observe the life of Christ, the experiences of the disciples, the persecution of Christians down through the ages, and my own experience, it seems obvious to me that the power God gives 
to those who stand with him is not the power to defeat our foes. Rather, it is the power to remain faithful and unshakable when facing resistance to the truth that we are proclaiming, or when being opposed and discredited, or when dealing with believers acting like unbelievers, or when seeking to resolve unnecessary conflict within the church, or when facing danger, persecution, and even death from those outside the church. It isn't the power to win over our foes. It's the power to remain faithful, steadfast, courageous in the face of our foes. Said differently, this God-given spirit of power is not a winsome personality or an unseen force that enables us to win over the most resistant believer or defiant and evil-intentioned unbeliever. Rather, it is strength of mind and character that enables us to boldly and confidently speak up, whether in the church or in the world, and when we speak up to call people to the truth. That is the spirit of power. So what if you don't have this spirit or mindset or disposition of power, but you'd like to? For me, I believe God gives us prayer. And an example prayer that comes from the scriptures is found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. And Paul specifically prays for power, not for himself, but for the believers. And we could follow this example. Let me read you these verses, starting at verse 14 of Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. If you don't think you have it, ask God for it. Now without question, this kind of inward power only comes from God. And those who use it for the good of God and God's people are able to remain faithful and unshakable in spite of the situation. God has given us a spirit of love. Though the Bible uses four Greek words to denote the differing manifestations of love, and uh, people have written books about that. Maybe one of the more famous ones is, has been written by C.S. Lewis. There are three primary definitions of love in the scripture, and they all point to the same thing. So regardless of the four different kinds of love, regardless of the relationship you're in, and you're expressing love in that relationship, love looks the same. That's my point. You may not have the same activities, you may not have the same intensity, but love looks the same. And that same thing is love does no harm to anyone. Love does no harm to anyone. Therefore, 
Love intentionally and thoughtfully seeks the good of everyone who is in any way affected by yours or my choices and behavior. And I would encourage you to look at Romans 10, 13, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 10, and 1 John 4, 10. It's for this reason that power, conditioned and ruled by love, seeks the good of everyone. When we understand what love is, then we begin to understand why God not only gives us a spirit of power, but also a spirit of love, because the spirit of love conditions the power. And power conditioned by love or ruled by love seeks the good of everyone. And that makes power, when used that way, the safest and best kind of power there is. Now, I think without question, this kind of power ought to at least exist in the church. And it can because God gives us a disposition or mindset of love to go along with and condition our spirit of power. However, it doesn't always exist even in the church. You see, when power is combined with pride or becomes insensitive and harsh or looks out for the good of some but not the good of all, it is a sure sign it is not the God-given spirit of power combined with the God-given spirit of love. We should be honest with people, but we should also seek to understand why they are the way they are, what they've dealt with, what they've put up with, where they come from. That's love. And so my encouragement to us is to thoughtfully and prayerfully condition our use of power especially those of us who are parents with young children, it is easy to use power to get everything back in shape in the house. And yes, you know, we have peace once again. But we need to condition even that use of power with love. And may we use the spirit of power and spirit of love given to us by God to bless other people, to serve them, while still speaking truth to them. And the last one is the spirit of discipline or sound judgment. This third disposition or mindset given to us by God is just as important as the first two. And why is that? Because we need disciplined thinking or what we can call sound judgment. We need disciplined thinking to maintain one power that is humble. When you're feeling the urge to express power to get things back into order, you need a disciplined mind to remember that you need to use your power humbly. That we need to keep power and humility together. We need discipline to maintain love that is honest yet patient and gentle. We need discipline to have ears that listen in order to understand, not just to respond. We need a disciplined mind. We need disciplined thinking in order to have speech that is respectful 
especially when facing opposition or when dealing with bad theology in the church or when correcting errant teachers or when calling a Christian brother or sister who's gone astray back to their senses and call them to godly living or when dealing with anything that easily upsets us. We need a disciplined mind. We need sound judgment. We need this God-given spirit of discipline added to our God-given spirit of power and love because we all deal with people who at various times and in various ways can be unpleasant or even difficult to be around. You know, they might be members of our own household. They might be friends. They might be neighbors. They might be co-workers. They might be fellow church members. Regardless, we need the power, we need the love, but we also need a disciplined mind. What stops your tongue from saying what it wants to say? What gives you pause so that you think through how you're going to say something? A disciplined mind, sound judgment. And so may we as God's people make proper use of all three gifts from God, spirit of power, the disposition of love, and the mindset of discipline, so that each is conditioned by the other. Let me conclude by saying that God does not give us timidness or cowardly fear. These things we produce on our own. That's us. What God gives is that spirit of power, love, and discipline, power to remain faithful and unshakable in the face of opposition, love that deals appropriately with the most difficult or cantankerous person, and discipline that reveals itself through sound judgment in the bold use of power and the honesty of love.